0: love that virtual choir that we started during this pandemic it's been uh, actually one of the highlights for me to be able to worship uh, along with our, our choir and our singers in that way and who knows as we uh start regathering next week it's all in god's hands uh what we'll do with the choir and the virtual nature of it but at least for this week i absolutely loved that You know, uh, one of the things that I have been teaching all of you through the pandemic starting three months ago is the absolute priority of prayer. that, That in times of dire need, really in all times, God's people need to pray. And that's when I developed, as I've been giving in my weekly updates, the the five Ps of prayer, at least for this time right now, the prayer of protection, uh, the prayer of God's provision, uh, the prayer of his presence, that his presence would be experienced and felt, uh, the prayer of his power in times of need, and then finally, but most importantly, the prayer of his peace. Uh, So you have protection, provision, presence, power, and peace, Uh, wonderful ways to guide us in our prayers. And so as we see what's going on in our culture right now that Rustin talked about earlier, I I just call and continue to ask our church to pray. Uh, Pray God's protection and provision, his presence, his power, his peace as we pray over the injustices that we see going on in our culture right now. This is when God's people rise up and pray for God's movement, for his healing, and for his justice to occur. And then as we regather or begin regathering next week, again, it's going to be very limited capacity, but as we do that, pray those five P's over our church as well, because we're going to need it. We're in uncharted territory as we have been for the last three months, and so I just count on God's people to be men and women of prayer during this time, and I thank you for that. So, God is good, he is in control, he is on his throne, none of that has changed. In fact, he does his best work in times of need, and uh, he also responds to the prayers of his people. So, with that said, we're starting a new series today on Jonah, some might think, well, how relevant is this, all that's going on with the pandemic and culture, You know, this idea of running from God, is that relevant? Yes, it's extremely relevant because in what you're seeing in culture today, as well as as what's happening with people having a shelter at home, we still have spiritual lives. And and all this can be traced back to one's walk with God and whether one runs from God or walks with God. And and so that's what we're going to explore over the next five weeks through this amazing book, the book of Jonah. So let's bow right now. We got just three verses we're going to look at today as we introduce this book to you. But you're going to be very encouraged as we take an honest look at what it means uh, to run from God and what God does in response. So let's bow and pray. Father, uh, truly, there's a lot going on in our culture now today that concerns us, not just the pandemic that we've been dealing with for three months, longer actually, Lord, but even right now, the the riots, the hurting, the injustice that's going on this week uh, in our country And so, Lord, as your people, what we have been learning to do, what we've learned to do over the years is to come before you on bended knee, with bowed heads, with with humble hearts, and to, Lord, ask for your justice, for your movement, for your healing, Lord, as we've learned, for your power, your provision, your protection, your peace, and your presence to come upon our culture and upon, surely, your people. So Lord, as we turn to your word now, and Lord, as we uh, open up your book, we pray that you might speak through the power of your Holy Spirit as you always do. Lord, as your word goes out, may it not return void, but may it do its work in our hearts and our minds as we look to you. And we pray these things only and always in Jesus' name. And we say together, amen. So in truly typical Jamie fashion, I'm going to begin our five-week journey through the book of Jonah with a candid and honest confession, and that is that I run from God. In fact, let's say it even more clearly, I run from God a lot. I do. And though we're going to talk in just a few minutes about the various and sundry ways in which I, and most likely you, run from God, I don't mind letting you know at the outset of this series that, as we called it, running from God, I'm very good at that. And here's my only consolation, I'm not alone. Because as we're going to learn in this series, Jonah was a fairly good runner himself. And he was a prophet a good and godly man of God. And this book that bears his name talks about his propensity to run from God at times in his lives, in his life and what God does in response. And I got to tell you, as I've read this book and studied it over the years, it makes me feel not as alone in my own experience with God to realize that there are godly men and women down through the ages and probably living alive today that that love God, that pine after him, that want to know him, that have even devoted their lives to him, which is what prophets do, and yet we're fallen, and at times we run from him. That encourages my spirit and my own experience with God, and this is gonna be a great journey through this amazing book. Now, before we dive in, to this idea of running from God, we first need to get something out of the way that sadly tends to be the focus when any, whenever anybody talks about the story of Jonah, and that is, did it really happen? Did it really happen? I mean, a guy gets eaten by a whale or a large fish, lives in its stomach for three days only to get <coughs> vomited up on dry ground. Come on, did this really happen and what you need to know is that this answer to this question has been hotly debated for the last 2,000 years. Some argue that this story is a classic parable, which is a short story with a, with, that is more fictitious than real, but teaches us something spiritual. Some argue that Jonah is a parable, and others argue that it's history, uh, that you also find obviously a lot in the Bible. And they've been debating this for thousands of years. Gregory of Nazianus, a 4th century church leader, as well as Martin Luther, the great reformer, both held that Jonah is a parable. And yet John Calvin, who was also a reformer, and others held that this is a true historical account. And so today, as you can imagine, you have both liberals as well as conservative evangelical theologians on both sides of the fence arguing that this is either a parable or it's history. And though I do see this as an important issue when it comes to this book, one of the things that we need to recognize right off the bat is that both those who see Jonah as a parable, as well as those who see it as an historical account, tend to get get the exact same meaning and message out of the book. I'm telling you, I've studied this book for years and I've read all the commentaries on it and whether a commentator takes a parabolic approach to it or an historical approach to it, they tend to get the same message as we're gonna see in this series for what this book is about. And that's good news, that we don't need to let that issue become a divisive issue for us in our understanding of Jonah. However, if you ask me, and I'm so glad that you did, I think that this story is definitely historical. Uh, Very quickly, by way of introduction, let me share with you three reasons why I think this is so. The first reason is, is that when you read Jonah, and it's only 42 verses long, so it's not a tough read, it doesn't read like other parables that we have in the Bible. In other words, it uses a real historical character, Jonah, that I'll show you in a minute, is a real person. And parables usually use fictitious characters. It has a complex storyline, not a very simple storyline like most parables. And if it were a parable, it would be the longest parable in the Bible. Most parables that Jesus taught were very short in nature. And this doesn't fit that timeline So it seems to read more like history than a parable. And then adding to this, a second reason that I opt for history is that there is historical evidence for Jonah as a prophet in Israel, as well as historical evidence for this book being history. So in 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 25, it mentions Jonah, the son of Amittai, a prophet during the reign of Jeroboam II, around 780 BC. So we know that he is a real person. And then, if that doesn't convince you, in Matthew 12, verse 40, Jesus mentions Jonah as an historical character when he likens his going into the grave for three days with Jonah being in the belly of the fish, or whale, for three days. And so Jesus is referencing Jonah there as an historical character. Even further, we have evidence both inside and outside the Bible of things mentioned in this story, like Assyria, the capital of Nineveh. I'm sorry, the Assyrian capital of Nineveh in Assyria. And and so there's just too much historical evidence outside and inside of Jonah to see it as a parable. And then thirdly, and this gets us to the whale issue of Jonah, uh, there is or are hard-to-believe miracles In the Bible. In other words, the main argument that people have against Jonah being a historical book is is this. They say people don't live inside of big fish for three days and three nights and then get regurgitated on dry ground. That just doesn't happen. It can't happen. And here's your response to this that's true. That doesn't happen. It'd be physically impossible for it to happen. And so it would have to be miraculous. For Jonah to live inside a whale or a large fish for three days and then get regurgitated alive on dry ground. But here's our ace in the hole. The Bible is filled with lots of miraculous events occurring in history. Things like the Exodus event, Elijah on Mount Carmel, Jesus' entire ministry, the miracles of the apostles. C.S. Lewis said it best. He said, if God can raise his son from the dead then all the other miracles in the Bible are easy. <laughs> and God does those things in history. Now, I think the story of Jonah really happened. I think Jonah was a real-life prophet in 780 B.C. based in Jerusalem. He was called to Nineveh to preach the Word of God. And this is the true story about that account. But again, If you don't buy into that, you're still gonna get the same message out of this book, I promise you. So hang on to your seat and get ready to hear some truth about you and God. So with this now behind us, what is the point of Jonah? What is this story really about? Because as we've already kind of cemented, it's not about a big fish or a whale. That only takes up three verses in actually 48 verses of all of Jonah So here's what this story is about. You're going to like this. This story is about you and your relationship with God. Let me repeat that. It's about you and your relationship with the Lord. It's about an intimate, grace-filled God who gives a call to one of his servants, Jonah, to give a tough message to an erring group of people, the Ninevites, and then how this servant runs from God and how God pursues him. That's what this story is about. And it's a powerful story for any of us who have any spiritual interest in God at all and yet are honest enough to admit that we kind of have a zigzag running event when it comes to our walk with God. And so let's spend the rest of our time today establishing the the essence and storyline of this account. And it occurs in the opening three verses. If ever there was a Cliff Notes version of a book of the Bible, this is it. It occurs in the three opening verses of the book of Jonah. So notice with me verses one and two and how this story begins. It says, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. Now, folks, what you need to notice right off the bat is that this is a classic prophetic call that's being given to Jonah here one that is strewn all over the Old Testament when God chooses to speak to his prophets to tell his people and the culture around them something significant. So notice that it says, the word of the Lord came to Jonah. The word of the Lord It says the same thing about Moses, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Paul, Peter, John, and so many more. It's like a scratch CD. The word of the Lord came to them. That's a clue that God has spoken clearly, and without a doubt, it's come from him that something needs to be said to either God's people or to the culture around them. And specifically notice here that God is telling Jonah, and this is rich, to go to the capital of a non-Jewish, non-believing country, Nineveh, in Assyria, and tell them that what they have been doing is absolutely wrong, that God is not pleased with them, that they need to do a 180 and begin to seek God and follow him once again. I'll show you this on a map in a minute here, but Nineveh is in present-day Iraq, which is northeast of Israel, and it was eventually destroyed in 622 B.C., Nineveh was. However, in Jonah's time, it's 780 B.C., 160 years before Nineveh would be destroyed, Sennacherib is the king, and this man was bent On world domination, he was self-absorbed. In fact, he called himself the great king. And the country was about as decadent as any country could get. It was like another Sodom and Gomorrah back then. Crime, immorality, sexual deviance were all running rampant. It was a godless country if there ever was one. And God has asked the prophet Jonah to be his mouthpiece and to go tell them to stop doing all these things, to do a 180, and to seek God and follow him or else. There's a warning to this. So simply note up to this point that Jonah has heard from God. It's a clear word. The word of the Lord came to Jonah. And it's a word given in order to help an erring nation start to walk with God and have a life-changing experience with him. And everything is looking good so far. It's eerily similar to all the other prophetic calls that occur throughout the Bible. And yet this one has a very different twist. Look at what happens, or look at what Jonah's response is to the call of God in his life. Look at verse 3. We're going to park in front of this for the rest of our time together today. It says, but Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish From the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa, found a ship which was going to Tarshish, paid for the fare, and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. Now, folks, I got to submit to you, this is kind of an unusual response from one of God's chosen mouthpieces, I'm telling you. And yet, this is what makes this book so different and even practical and relevant today. don't miss the action that's going on here. This is very rich. This is the only thing I really need you to see in these three opening verses, and that is that Jonah is running from God and to something else. Let me repeat that. This is a pattern you must see here for your own life today. Jonah is running from God, and he's running to something else. Look again at verse 3, and in my usual fashion, this time I'm going to highlight some things, and you're going to see it here. It says, but Jonah rose up to flee, or run, to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa, found a ship which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare, and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord." So notice first that Jonah is running from God. It says that he set out to flee or run, and I like how it says it here twice. It makes it very clear, from the presence of the Lord. From the presence of the Lord. That word presence is the Hebrew word panim. It's a far-ranging term used all the time in the Old Testament. It's a very, very rich term. It literally means the face of someone, panim, the face of someone, And so when it says that when Jonah ran from the presence, the panim of the Lord, it means that he ran from the face of God, from God's immediate relational activity in his life. Again, this is why it was important that we established this earlier. God was speaking to Jonah. A word from the Lord came, so he's in the face of God there. And when it says that he ran from the presence of the Lord, Jonah turned away from the face of the Lord and started to run. He's trying to get away from God's voice, his activity in his life. And we need to pause here briefly before we move on to what Jonah is running to and remind ourselves that what Jonah is trying to do, we're going to explore this more in the coming weeks, but this is really important. What Jonah is trying to do is not really possible when you think about it, to get away from God's presence in our lives. If you've read the Bible at all, you're going to be familiar with this, this passage. One of the most famous psalms outside of Psalm 23 is Psalm 139. And in Psalm 139, it actually talks about the presence of God. And, uh, and, and, and David, who's writing the psalm, psalm says this. He says, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I run from your presence? He says, if I go up to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, behold, you're there as well if i take the wings of the dawn and fly really far to the remotest parts of the sea even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay a hold of me <laughs> what jonah is trying to do is something that any of us as parents have experienced remember when your kids were little toddlers or right now some of your kids are little toddlers and and, and there's times where you say hey little johnny or susie come to me and they they don't want to come so they turn around and they they start to run from you thinking that they actually can <laughs> What they don't realize in their little toddler mind is that though it feels like they're actually running from you, you're actually right behind them, and that it's actually physically impossible for them to get away from you. That's Jonah when it comes to God. He is running from God, but as we're going to see next week, he's not going to be able to get away from him, and that's good news, and neither can you or I, but he's going to try anyways. His fallen fleshly nature is bent on running. And so notice that as he is running from God, now let's look at the second part here, he's running to something. And though I'm going to suggest here in a minute that all of us run to various things when we run from God, Jonah chooses to run physically to another geographical place, in other words, Jonah wants to change geography in order to get away from God, literally hightailing it out of Dodge, or in this case, Jerusalem, and heading the other way. I warned you earlier, I was gonna show you this on a map, and I don't mean to bore you with uh, you know, Middle East geography, but this is kind of important. It's actually almost humorous when you, when you realize this. Um, here is the, the Middle East, a map of the ancient Middle East with all the ancient cities, and, and right here from Damascus, Uh, down to the Sinai Peninsula is is Israel, where it is today and where it was back then. And and, and here's Jerusalem. Jonah is somewhere around Jerusalem here when he gets the call from God. And as I said to you earlier, the call that Jonah got was to go where modern-day Iraq is right now, and that was to Nineveh. And And I told you it was northeast of Israel, and sure enough, it is. So here's Israel and Jerusalem. Go northeast. There's Nineveh. Uh, where it was back then, again, destroyed since then, but it's where Iraq is now. Now, here's what's really rich. When it says that Jonah went down from Jerusalem, it means that he went down to Joppa, which is along the Mediterranean Sea here, and Tarshish is actually off the map. It was the furthest known part of the world that they knew back then this way. And so that's the visual you need to see, is that Jonah's here, God says go here, he goes down to a boat to go that way. (laughs) He is going physically in the opposite direction that God calls him to, to the furthest point known in the world at that time. Please simply see, Jonah is running from God to anywhere that God might not find him, but it's not gonna happen. Because as we look at God's response, which we're going to do next week, uh, we're going to realize that that God has other plans, but what you and I first need to cement before we do a drive-by too quickly into the rest of the verses of chapter one, and this is worth pausing in front of, is to apply this to our own lives and realize this, and it's the point of the first three verses of Jonah, and that is that we all have a tendency to be like Jonah and run from God. We all have a tendency to run from God, and I mean each and every one of us, every one of us, all of us, at times, run from him. You know, it's interesting, when you study this book closely, which I have over the years, you actually notice that there are two sets of runners in the book of Jonah. Obviously, you have Jonah running from God's call on his life, and then, as we'll explore in the weeks ahead, you have the Ninevites who are obviously running from God as well. They don't even know him yet, and they're living decadent, set-apart lives because they don't want to know God. They they don't believe in him, but they're going to. Uh, You'll read that later on in the book. Uh, But they're running as well. So when you think about it, this book basically lumps together God's prophet with the rest of humanity and says, y'all tend to run at times in your life. And though most of us don't literally change geography when we run from God, though I have known some people today to also do that, we run in other ways. In other words, this is worth exploring, we have our own tried and true, perfected over the years methods of running from God in which we too try to get away from his panim, his presence, his face. In other words, like Jonah, we run from God and to God other things. And so in just the few minutes we have left remaining today, let me get very practical with you and suggest four ways that I have noticed over the years that many of us, all of us at times tend to run from God. And you might not relate to all four of these. Maybe you'll like latch onto one of them and go, oh my gosh, that's me. Or maybe all four you'll go, yeah, I kind of do these at times. But, but let's get honest in, 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 in our church right now. And talk about the various ways that we pull a Jonah in our lives and run from God. Because this will be very important for the rest of the series. Here's the first way. Is that we run from God, we run from God to behavioral sin. We run from God to behavioral sin. You know what I'm talking about. It's those nagging sins of thought and action that we know are not God's will for our lives. But we do them anyways. Some of us have been stuck in them for years out of habit, and let's be honest, we do them, we know this, as a way of finding relief to our aching soul because they make us feel so good in the moment, and yet we end up feeling empty in the long run and far away from God because when you run to behavioral sin, you're actually running from him. And just to be clear, I'm talking about everything from gossip to anger outbursts to pornography to abusing substances to cutting moral corners in your business practices to telling lies to a materialistic lifestyle to eating too much. I mean, the list is endless to the things that God's people will do that they know because the Bible's so clear that we shouldn't do. And what you need to connect the dots with today is that we do them as a way of running from god they provide a sinful source of comfort to our lives and we think that it'll make us feel good but in the end they'll let us down and like jonah we're running from god but we run from god to behavioral sin we don't change geography (laughs) we just change our lifestyle but in so doing we're just like jonah maybe that's you Here's a second way that many people run from God, and that is that we run from God to relational distance. We run from God to relational distance. In other words, we might not fall into behavioral sin. No, we're too righteous for that. We just shut down relationally on God. We stop praying. We stop reading the Word regularly. We stop actively seeking Him in our lives. Again, usually due to something like a profound disappointment with God or a tragedy that occurs in our lives, we just figure that if, if God's going to feel distance from us, we might as well return the favor. So we abandon the old quiet time. We, we abandon our devotional life where we meet with God to regularly seek him and relate to him as our father. We shut down internally and go on our merry way. Many of us do this At times in our lives, even for long seasons, it's our way of running by relationally distancing ourselves from the Lord. And here is what is so deceptive about this strategy. I'm telling you, I've been watching church people for 40 years now, and we are a wily group of people. When we run from God to relational distance, it's not that we have abandoned the outward Christian life I mean, we still attend church, we go to small group, we might attend Bible study, we might still serve now and then. But here's where it's deceptive. In places where nobody but you and God see, you have shut down. You have stopped relating to Him as your intimate, loving Father who cares for you. And so your prayers become cold, your Bible reading becomes non-existent, and your active seeking of Him is not so active anymore. And the reason that I know this methodology so well, and again, I I don't mind confessing this. This is honesty time for our church, is that out of the four things I'm going to share with you, the four ways to run from God, this is clearly, hands down, the way that I run from God the most. I'm not bragging, but I don't fall into behavioral sin too much, because if I did, it would threaten my ministry. That might sound shallow, but I'm not going to do that Plus, my wife might kill me. So I'm not going there. So I live a relatively, if not very clean life uh, as far as behavioral sin goes. And and as we're gonna see in the other two things here in a minute, they don't really fit my my lifestyle as a pastor or a Christian leader, so I don't tend to run from God these ways as well. So what am I left with? When I don't feel like relating to God, I just shut down on him in here, and I fake it till I make it. The problem is, is that sometimes that might be a long time. And, and again, we can all be so wily and deceptive as Christians, you might not be the wiser, though some of you are very discerning and can tell when I'm doing that, and yet I'm still running from God. Now, there's a great old Keith Green song in which Keith Green gets really honest about his walk with the Lord. I, I love this verse, he says this, he says, my eyes are dry, my faith is old. My heart is hard, my prayers are cold, and I know how I ought to be alive to you and dead to me. I remember the first time I heard Keith Ring sing this, I started weeping, because I'd only been a Christian for a few years, and yet that was me, that was me. I I can shut down internally on God and just like Jonah, I'm going down to Joppa. I'm trying to find that ship away from his panim, his presence. And yet I'm doing so by running to relational distance. So we run from God to behavioral sin. We run from God to relational distance. And then a third way that we run from God, like our friend Jonah, is that we run from God to a disobedience of his call. We run from God to a disobedience of his call. This is probably the closest to becoming an actual Jonah, like him, that you can get. And it works like this. We hear God call us to do something, maybe to share our faith with a lost one around us or to give some of our money away or our time to a needy person or ministry or maybe to reconcile a relationship that you know needs to be reconciled, but you got to take the first step or maybe to, to do something more in your service to God, but it's going to cost you some time. In other words, God still gives calls to his people very personally and clearly like he did to the prophets back then. And yet instead of saying a resounding yes to God when he does this, we inwardly say no, God, and go on with our lives as if a word never came to us. So we run from God by saying no to his still small voice that speaks to our spirit about something that he wants us to do. And I see it happen all the time with God's people. He calls you and you say no. And again, you don't change geography like Jonah did, but you're still running to a disobedience of his call. I've been your pastor here for just going on 13 years now. And uh, when I first came here, it was 2007. I'll never forget in 2008, one of our elders at that time, a guy that I loved a lot, still do, uh, Dan Scruggs, who was a longtime member of Scottsdale Bible, came to me and said, I need to have lunch with you. And I'd only been here for a few months. And so I, I said, Sure, Dan. And we went out to lunch. And he said, I, I got to tell you something kind of exciting, but also scary and I need your help, he said five years ago, God told me, I'm just a lay preacher, uh, I've never been in active ministry, but God told me I needed to plant a church in this area. And he said, I clearly heard him say to do it, I know this is from the Lord, and I want to do it, but I've been saying no to him for five years. And he said, now I think the time is right I tried not to put together the fact that I was his new pastor with the fact that he now said times I was right, but I think Dan loved me, and I loved him, and he said, I need your help to do so. And I got to tell you, folks, I took Dan so seriously. He's a godly man. He's an elder, and we said as an elder team, we're 100% behind you because if God has called you to do it, and you've been saying no for five years, you've got to stop doing that, and you have to say yes to him. Based on Dan saying yes to God, he identified a town that every one of us is familiar with, a town called Fountain Hills, and we helped him plant a church called North Chapel. It's now called North Chapel Bible Church. And Dan, for about a decade, uh, led this small but potent group of believers uh, to find a building and a space to plant a church in Fountain Hills, and it's been amazing to watch their ministry over over the last decade or so. Bobby Brewer is now the pastor there, and they're they're doing well, they're growing, and they're having a kingdom impact. But it all started with a man who said, I've been running from God to a disobedience of his call. No more. I'm now gonna follow him into uncharted waters and look at what God did. You see, that's God. But you have to be honest. Maybe some of you are running from God to a disobedience of his call. And as we'll see in the series, man, there's plenty of time for you to turn like Jonah will and start following him again. So we we got behavioral sin, you got intimacy avoidance, you got failure to heed his call. And and then real quickly is a fourth way that we tend to run from God. And I see this one all the time. We run from God to what I call fellowship avoidance. You're saying, what's that about? We run from God to fellowship avoidance. Here's how this works. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25 says, do not forsake meeting together with other believers Because we need spiritual encouragement. We need to encourage one another, and all the more as the day is approaching. And so it tells us that we need each other as believers in order to grow spiritually. That's why this stay-at-home thing has been so hard, because though we can do this digitally, eventually we got to get back together and start being the church again, encouraging each other. It's what fellowship is about. But think about it. Sometimes when we're running from God, And I know we've all done this. We cop an attitude and we withdraw from others, other believers, because we know that if we get with them, they're going to remind us that we are believers, that we need to be walking with God, that we need to get with the program. And I'd just rather not do that. So we become an island in our spiritual life. I hear people actually say this. I don't need church anymore. It can be just me and God. And that's thoroughly unbiblical. We all know that. And it's indicative, usually, of somebody running from God. They don't want to be reminded. They don't want spiritual input. And so we run from God to fellowship avoidance. So here's the deal. Let's add this up. I have yet to meet someone who at some point in their lives, in some way or another, has not run from God. That's what we need to, to establish as we move into the, the waters of Jonah. But we run to behavioral sin. We, we avoid intimacy with God. We say no to a clear call on our lives or we just shut out other believers. I'm sure there's many other ways that we run from God. But one thing is for sure, we all got a little bit of Jonah in us. We all run from him at times. And this entire book, it's gonna be an amazing journey, is gonna teach us about our running and what God does when we run, and how, when we do, we can turn back to him and find him again. In fact, I'm gonna whet your whistle for next week, find him a lot closer than we thought. So all the titles of this, of this series, the messages in the series, have to do with running, running from God, and next week we're gonna entitle Still Running From God, and, and then running to God, and then running for God and then running with God. It's all about running, and don't ever forget this. This is a book of immense grace. Why? Because God, we're gonna learn, is a God of second chances, and third, and fourth, and fifth, and sixth, and seventh, even for godly people like his prophets. There's unlimited grace and forgiveness when it comes to God. I love how Jeremiah said it as he's walking through the ruins of Israel, in Lamentations 3, and he says, for his, for God's compassions never fail. They are new every morning. And Jonah is gonna teach us this. So take heart, runner, if you tend to run from him. He's gonna run after you. We're gonna learn that in the coming weeks. And he loves you. But you gotta get honest. Stop living in denial. And realize that there's multiple ways we tend to run from God. What's yours? Because in getting real, you're gonna get God. Why don't you bow with me and let's pray. Father, I thank you for this amazing book that as Rustin said earlier is one of his favorite books because many of us know Rustin's journey. He's been a pretty good runner himself over the years. Lord, one thing I've learned as I've matured in my walk with you is that though I I run less and I run in different ways, I, I still run, God, as part of our fallen nature and so God, I pray that as we get honest as a church about our walk with you, as we look at the culture around us and see so many runners as well, a lot of Ninevites, Lord, in our culture, God, I pray that we would stop judging the world around us and realize there's actually a natural tie. We all tend to be runners. And that, Lord, we would learn what you do when we run. And Lord, as we're gonna see in the series, how to run back to you, how to turn back to you. The Bible calls it repentance and find your grace in your goodness, your truth, once again in our lives. So, Lord, give hope to every one of us here today, any of us who relate to running. Help us identify how we run, God, and what ways we do so. And Lord, with that nugget of truth and honesty, God, we want to bring that to you in this series and learn how to walk more closely with you as we go along. Thanks for your grace. Thank you for the prophet Jonah who's gonna teach us so much. We pray these things in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen.